Acts chapter 21. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 36, and you can find that on page 930 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. So Acts 21, starting at verse 15, reading through verse 36. Well, they say that the difference between knowledge and wisdom is that while knowledge is knowledgeable, wisdom knows how, when, and why to apply that knowledge. So a young man, young woman may know many things about the world, but a wise man and a wise woman will know when and how to apply that knowledge to the real world. It's one thing to know the theory of something. It's another thing to have actually mastered the skill. And it has taken many years for me to realize the difference of what that was. And it has also been frustrating because wisdom takes time to develop. I think that's what can make the pursuit of wisdom hard. Wisdom, like a good barbecue, can't be microwaved. Because true wisdom is not just about having the right answers. It's about teaching us godliness and righteousness. The way of wisdom is the way of love. And I'll be honest, when I was working on this sermon and I had picked the title and I was ready to go and I came upstairs and told Ellie very excitedly how excited I was to preach this sermon. And she's like, oh, that's perfect. It's Valentine's Day. And I was like, oh my goodness, it is. I had no, I, this, was, this was not coordinated. What I would rather do this morning and rather than preaching a Valentine's Day sermon is to show you the wisdom of love and love in wisdom. And we see that this morning in Paul's life. Paul calls the way of love in 1 Corinthians 12 a more excellent way, a greater and more desirable thing than the gift of tongues, prophecies, healing, teaching, and all knowledge because he shows in the next chapter without love, those other things are nothing. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body up to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And Paul then goes on to describe love this way. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Hopefully, in Paul's words, you can see the intersection between love and wisdom. Love rejoices in the truth, and it seeks to apply the truth in a right way. It knows when to speak and it knows when to bear with. It displays humility because it is selfless. It is patient and kind to others. It trusts and hopes in the promises of God, and it applies those promises to daily life. So wisdom and love are meant to walk in our lives hand in hand together. They are priorities for your life meant to be a light in the darkness to direct us in where and how to go. Last week, we looked at discerning what the will of God is, what the will of God is, and how we relate ourselves to it. Well, here in that, we need to see that to do that rightly, we have to walk in love. 
This morning, we're going to be looking at Paul's arrival in Jerusalem. We've been following Paul's journeys uh, through the Roman Empire back home to Jerusalem, and now we're finally there. Uh, We have been working on this for some time now, and so... um, As we arrive, Paul's time here, we're going to see, goes about as we've been led to expect. It is not long once he enters the city before Paul is placed in chains and then handed over to the Gentiles, just as the prophet Agabus had prophesied back in Caesarea. Now, we're going to be looking at the details of Paul's arrival in Jerusalem this morning, and specifically of his arrest. But and as we do, I do want to point out this is a major turning point in the book of Acts. It's everything that happens after this is going to be in relation to what happens in our passage this morning. It's, Paul is going to be in custody from here until the end of the book. And that is going to lead to the gospel going into all sorts of places, places that it would not have otherwise. So it's a really important moment, even if it's kind of hard to read about how he is treated for the way that he showed uh, faithfulness and and love to those uh, who hated him. But besides honing in on an important moment in the book of Acts, what I really want to show you this morning is the way that Paul conducted himself while he was in Jerusalem. There are just a number of interesting details that Luke has recorded for us about Paul's time in Jerusalem leading to his arrest, which really provide us a powerful example of what it looks like for Christians to walk in wisdom and in the way of love. And that's what I want to bring out to you this morning as we study this text together. So as we begin, let's begin with reading it. Uh, If you would, please stand with me as I read, starting in verse 15 and then reading through verse 36. This is the word of the Lord. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in. And the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification will be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. 
they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the, tri- to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, if I were to ask you what compelled Paul to go to Jerusalem knowing what awaited him there, what he would suffer, how would you answer? Well, I expect you'd probably go back to chapter 20, where Paul had told the Ephesian elders that he was constrained by the Spirit to go. And you would be right to explain it accordingly. But as we hear Paul, as we hear Paul say that, we really must understand that when Paul went to Jerusalem, constrained as he was to go, he did not go against his own will, but he went willingly. You see, the cords which bound him to the will and the direction of the Lord were cords of love. Paul entrusted himself in life or in death to God. And as a faithful soldier, as a willing servant, Paul went where his master called him to go, resolved that whatever the cost was, it was worth it. Love drove Paul to Jerusalem, and it led him to conduct himself the way that he did while he was there. And that's what I want to bring to your attention from the text this morning. Now, Jesus commands his disciples to embrace his love for their lives. Paul shows us a little bit of what that looks like here in this passage. So we have much to learn from it about what it looks like to follow Jesus what it looks like to follow him as a faithful disciple, what it means to keep his command to love as he has loved us. Love is what will move us to finish and complete the works he has prepared for us beforehand to do. Love is what equips us with wisdom and how to navigate complex situations with wisdom to fulfill the law of Christ in bearing with one another. Love is what will lead us to endure whatever suffering we must for the sake of the truth and the name of Christ, because we have found a greater treasure in him. So the main idea of this sermon simply is this, that love fulfills the law of Christ. And what I want to do this morning is to show you what that looks like from Paul's life. So I have three points for you, three observations about Paul's life that easily translate, I think, into our own. So first, I want to show you how love led Paul to complete his mission Second, I want to show you how love led Paul to serve as one under the law uh, to reach those under the law. And third, I want to show you how love led Paul to endure injustice for the name of Christ. So let's begin by looking at how love completes the mission. Well, Paul spent a number of days in the city of Caesarea to the north preparing to make his final leg 
uh, the final leg of his journey up to Jerusalem. Now, you'll, you may notice in the scriptures how oftentimes you'll hear they came down from Jerusalem or they came up to Jerusalem. That's because Jerusalem is a high place. And so pretty much everything around there is lower than it. So when Luke says, we went up to Jerusalem, he's talking about how they literally are walking uphill. It was a long, grueling journey. It had been many days since Paul has been here, and it has been many days since he first started his trip here. I'm sure it was refreshing for Paul to get some time recovering with Philip and the believers in Caesarea, uh, especially because he knew that as soon as he entered Jerusalem, he was going to be stepping into one of the greatest trials in his life. But the cost did not stop him from completing the mission. In verses 15 and 16, Luke tells us that after they had spent a few days in Caesarea, they got up and they went up to Jerusalem, and there they stayed with a brother named Nason, who was from Cyprus, but we are told it was a, a disciple from early on. Now, we don't know much about this brother, uh, whether he was a believer, he came to be a believer in Jesus' own ministry, or whether he was one of the um, one of the Greek Jews who had come to faith in Pentecost. We, we're not really told, um, but we get the impression uh, of him uh, that he was a faithful brother who was mature in his faith and who was also eager to show Christian love and hospitality, not just to Paul, but also to the representatives of these churches in the West who were traveling with him and also to these disciples in Caesarea. So he'd have to have a pretty good basis. He'd have to be fairly well off financially to host them, but we also see how he used that to, to be hospitable to Paul and the needs of these disciples. In fact, Luke goes on to say that the brothers in Jerusalem, when they heard that they were there, rejoiced and received them gladly. The cultural differences that would normally have divided them from these men have turned into an opportunity to rejoice in the work of the gospel as it has gone out to the nations. But Paul wasn't here just to visit old friends. He had a purpose in coming. And so we're told that the next day, after they had come into the city, Luke says that Paul went in with us to James and all the elders who were present. And after greeting them, he related to them one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, the last time we're told about Paul meeting with James, who was kind of the head leader of the church in Jerusalem, and these other elders of the church in Jerusalem, was all the way back in Acts 15. So it's been a little while since we were there. If I can remind you, Acts 15 tells us about the council that had been called to deal with the question of whether or not a person had to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. Now, if we went back there, we would, see, we would find Paul and Barnabas arguing uh, that it was not necessary for Gentile believers to be circumcised or to submit themselves to the customs of Moses in order to be saved. And this, this was a huge issue that the church was having to think through. Besides Paul and Barnabas, Peter had made a strong point to that council that God made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, but that salvation was through grace in faith, it was by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> the council had decided then that it would be good to ask these Gentile believers to abstain from things that would draw, that would make a put a wedge between them and the other Jewish believers. They asked them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and also from what had been strangled uh, and from what and from blood. So they did not add extra burdens on them, but they did give them some direction to help. Uh, some commands, 
specifically in how to love their Jewish brothers and sisters. Now, since that time, a lot has happened. The gospel has gone out even further. It's gone into Asia. It's gone into Macedonia, Greece, and even Rome. There are churches in cities across the Roman Empire, and the evidence of God's power to exalt Jesus among the nations is literally sitting right in front of James and these elders. Luke says that we went in with Paul, which I take to mean that he and these representatives who had traveled from the churches in the West with Paul to Jerusalem as they were bringing a gift to help meet the financial needs of the church there, they are literally sitting with these men. And Paul is talking about, oh, in in Ephesus, this happened. And our friend the Ephesian is like, yes, it sure did. I'm an evidence of that, and so on. Now, I assume that Luke doesn't mention, that Luke doesn't mention uh, the gift being given, but I assume this is the moment when Paul, in the presence of these other men, commends this gift to James and the other elders to be distributed in the church where it was needed most. It's not difficult to imagine the wonder that must have been on these men's faces as they heard Paul relate to them all that God had done in places like Corinth and Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Ephesus, making his glory known among the nations. I'm sure that word had started kind of filtering back to them because there are rumors going around Paul in the city, but now Paul is sitting there telling them face to face all the amazing things that God had done. And so as they listen, verse 20, Luke says, when they heard it, they glorified God. So this meeting turns into, a, into worship. They are hearing how God's power has been at work among the nations, and they are exalting God because of it. And as we read that response, I don't think I can stress to you how important this moment was for the life of the church. For years and years, the Jewish people had been distinguished among the nations as God's chosen people. Theirs were the covenants and the promises. They had the law and the prophets. God had made them into a city on a hill, a light in the darkness to show his glory in all the earth. The the point of it was to the nations would come and see the glory of God. Those promises, that purpose, those covenants, they were all leading to Jesus, the Christ, God's anointed one. Jesus had brought that salvation, which God had promised, into reality through his obedience to the law, through his death under the law, through his resurrection, and through his reign. Jesus had also expanded this to the nations, so that as Paul says in Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both together to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So, as Luke and Sopater and Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus sat presumably with James and these other elders commending this gift from their churches to their Jewish brothers. They were witnessing together how God had brought that hostility and that division to rest, how he had made them one in Christ. And they rejoiced together because they were seeing the gospel of grace and the power of God at work in each other's lives. Now, the reason I think that Paul was felt so compelled in the spirit to go to Jerusalem is because he felt responsible to ensure 
that the work of Christ to bring Jew and Gentile together in his blood was received by the churches. As we'll see in a moment, the church was still maturing to see what that fellowship looked like. So this is a key moment in the life and the history of the church. This meeting and this report represent more than just a gathering of people from different places. It was a display of the work of God to expand his kingdom to the nations. It was the work of the Holy Spirit to bring the flock of Christ together under the banner of his covenant. It was a display of the power of God to make his name known among the nations. I believe that the reason that Paul dared to enter the city with these men was ultimately because of the love that he had for Christ and for the mission that he had received as an apostle of Christ to the Gentiles because he was doing his part to see and shepherd the church through these very complex issues. Paul brought a gift of love with him, and he showed his love for Christ and for the bride of Christ, the church, through this report to these brothers. He is running his race. He's finishing his course. He's completing the mission of his king, entrusting the results to God in eager hope and confidence of his eternal kingdom. Love led Paul to enter the city, and the church grew together as a result. Christ was glorified in his power through Paul's love. Now, I know up here you guys are all NFL fans, but I have, there was a lot of drama in college football this year uh, about the playoffs specifically. So if you follow any of this, uh, you might know that Florida State was undefeated this year. They didn't lose a single game, but they had had a lot of injuries, including their starting quarterback. The committee, the playoff committee, made some pretty big waves because they decided to leave them out of the playoff. And so Florida State ended up playing the University of Georgia, who had only lost one game when the SEC championship, and who I honestly believe was the best team in the nation. So fans, coaches, players were livid. ESPN servers must have like almost broken down with everybody trying to figure out what was going on. It was so bad that many of the starters for Florida State who weren't injured decided they weren't going to play if they weren't in the playoff. And so when they finally played a very healthy Georgia team, they were crushed 63-3. to It's the worst Orange Bowl defeat in history, I think. Now, I saw a statement from one of the UGA players that I thought really captured the difference between the two teams. Both teams had talent, but he pointed out that the difference was that the University of Georgia had taught their players to finish the drill, to give their best even when they had been snubbed by an opportunity that they felt like they deserved. And so they showed up and they won. They played for each other. They played for their university. They played for their fans and just for the love of the game. The difference was love. Love made the difference. Well, as we look at Paul's life, we see a love for the glory of Christ and a love for his bride for the church, and a love for the gospel that made him want to complete the mission, to risk it all in pursuit of defending the faith and bringing glory to Christ. Love won. So brothers and sisters, as we look at Paul's example here, as he takes himself and and puts his head literally in the mouth of the lion as he goes, 
Can I challenge you this morning to learn from his example? Will you choose to love? Will you choose to rejoice in the truth? Will you choose to risk your own discomfort to put in the work to be obedient to the calling of Christ in your life? God has called you. He has set his purpose on you. He has prepared beforehand works for you to do to the glory of Christ. Will you finish the drill? If you're going to finish the drill, you must love him. Love is the way of Christ. It is the only way we can hope to complete our mission. So let us love as Christ did, who loved us even to the end and beyond. That brings us to our second point. Love leads us to bear with one another. Now, I wish I could have been in the room with Paul and James and these other brothers. I I wish I could have seen the looks on their faces as Paul told them about how God had delivered him from all of these dangers he had faced and had made the church flourish in spite of all the odds so that the gospel was going out into all of Asia and Macedonia and Greece and beyond. What a happy place that room must have been. And even so, as we get to verse 20, we see that there is something weighing on the mind of James and these elders. There's trouble in Jerusalem. In the time that Paul has been away, they tell him many thousands of Jews had believed the gospel. And I'm sure that as Paul heard that, his heart must have soared. Because we read in his writings, his letters specifically uh, to the Romans, about how he says he would give his own soul up if his Jewish brothers and sisters could believe the gospel. So this report made Paul glad. This is good news. But rumors had been making their way back to Jerusalem to these believers about Paul. People are saying that he's teaching Jews to live abroad, who are living abroad, to forsake Moses and to forsake the customs of the law. A word on the street is that Paul is telling Jewish families not to circumcise their baby boys. Uh, These same Jewish believers, James says, are very zealous for the law. And so you can imagine how disturbing they would have found these rumors. Most of them had never met Paul. He was just a name to them. But they were concerned because as far as they were, that, based on what they had heard of him, uh, their picture of Paul was that he was a rogue, that he was leading good Jewish families to abandon God's word. And if you put yourself in their position, I think, you would, I think you could be considered why they would be upset about this, why they would be deeply concerned and worried that Paul had now come to Jerusalem. As we think about that, though, we have to ask ourselves if there was any merit to these rumors. And the answer is simply no. Paul was not teaching Jews to abandon Moses. He was not telling them not to circumcise their baby boys or to forsake the customs. What he had taught was that salvation was not a matter of works of the law, but that it was a matter of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He taught that physical circumcision did not make a person righteous. He opposed the false gospel that Jesus' work on the cross merely made a person capable of keeping the precepts of the law, and that a person had to keep those things to be saved. He taught that the law was necessary and that it was good because it made God's righteousness known to us, that it convicts sin and shows us that we cannot save ourselves. He also taught that Jesus fulfilled the law through his perfect life, 
that he came under the curse of the law for our sin on the cross and that he had released us from the law through his victorious resurrection. Paul was not opposed to the law. He preached the fulfillment of the law. But that was not the rumor that had reached the ears of these zealous brothers and sisters. And so James and the elders of the church in Jerusalem are clearly concerned about what will happen to the church when they hear that Paul is in town. So they advise Paul to to take a step to show his solidarity with them. They tell him to sponsor these four men who had taken a vow and join them in a purification rite, paying their expenses and putting these rumors to rest. This would show Paul's piety and it would preserve peace in the church, since they say, then all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself live in observance of the law. Now, Paul preached very clearly that Christians, Jew and Gentile, are not under the law if they are in Christ. The demands of the law have been fulfilled. The condemnation that it brings against us has been laid on Christ. Those who the Son has set free are free indeed, Paul tells the Galatians. And he says the law was our guardian until Christ came, but in order that we might be justified, that or in order that we might be justified by faith. And then he says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So why do we find Paul, having preached that, submitting to this plan from James and these brothers to pay this fee and go through this ritual with these brothers in observance to the law? Is Paul contradicting himself? Well, no, I don't think he is. Rather, I think he is doing what he says, what he describes, in 1 Corinthians 9, where he explains, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Now, as I read that, I want you to hear the heart of Paul's message there. It's a heart of love. It's service. He says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save them. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." I want to submit to you that the reason Paul went through with this plan was not because of fear. It was not because he was writing one thing in his letters and doing something else in person. It was not because he was trying to get away or get without having to suffer in Jerusalem just by pacifying people. No, Paul did this because of love. The gospel is not at odds with the law. It is the good news of how Christ has fulfilled the law and its demands. Paul did not sponsor these men or submit himself to this right because he thought he could gain righteousness for himself through these works. He did it for the sake of love to these brothers and sisters who had trusted Jesus and were still committed to keeping the precepts of the law. He told the Corinthians that he was free from the law and yet that he was not free from the law of God but under the law of Christ. 
The law of Christ, the New Testament explains to us, is the way of love. And so we see him agreeing to this so as not to offend these Christians, not to upset their faith. He treated them with love and affection, even as he treated uh, Trophimius, the Ephesian, with love and affection. Because we see that even as he did this right, he did not separate himself from his Gentile brothers who had traveled with him. Paul was not a chameleon. He's not a man changing and compromising his convictions and teaching to fit whatever might please the people around him. But he was willing to bear with these brothers and sisters who were still growing in their faith. He did not give offense where offense was not due, but rather he chose love and wisdom, showing that the gospel is not contrary to the law, but the fulfillment of it. Martin Luther, the reformer, once stated, a Christian is, the, is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. I think that quote sums Paul's actions up really quite well. And I think it is also a charge for us to fulfill the law of Christ by bearing with one another in Christian love and service. Owe no one anything, Paul tells us in Romans 13, 8, except to love one another. When the integrity of the gospel was on the line, Paul was willing to use his Christian liberty to care for the needs of brothers, his brothers and sisters, and so must we. And that brings us to our third point. Love endures injustice for the sake of Christ. Now, Paul was willing to sponsor these men and to submit himself to this right. He had done it before. If you remember his last trip to Jerusalem, he's doing it now. Luke tells us that when the prescribed seven days were almost completed, some of the Jews from from Asia, most likely from Ephesus, saw him in the temple. And this is when chaos ensued. They couldn't believe what they saw. As far as they were concerned, Paul was enemy number one. And here he was in the temple. So they picked up where they left off back in Ephesus. They laid hands on him, and then whipping the crowd into a frenzy, they yelled out, Men of Israel, help! This man is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this, in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this place. Now, these are all false accusations. Paul had done nothing of the sort. He has been with uh, Trophimus, the Ephesian, but he had not brought him into the temple, which would have been a capital offense. But true or not, these men managed to get the whole city in an uproar. We're told that they they seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, which promptly shut its gates to make sure there was no bloodshed in the temple itself. Their purpose was to kill Paul, to beat him to death under this accusation that he had profaned the temple. And they would have carried out that plan if it hadn't have been for the arrival of this Roman cohort that was stationed in a watchtower at the top of the city. Now, the tribune who was over this cohort had heard that chaos had broken out in the city. And now it was his responsibility to maintain order. Uh, he, it was, if, if he allowed things to get out of hand, it was his life. So we're told that he took soldiers and ran down to them. And when he arrived, the mob who was beating Paul, trying to kill him, stopped because they realized they were in trouble. Uh, assuming that Paul was, in fact, a criminal, we're told that this, this cohort, uh, this tribune, actually, uh, just grabbed Paul up and put him into chains. He assumes that Paul is the problem. 
but he has no idea why the people are upset. So he starts to ask around. And Luke tells us that he can't get a clear answer from anyone. One person is saying this, another person is saying this. He doesn't even know who Paul is. It's chaos started by these Jews from Asia, not unlike the riot that Demetrius had started there. Now, seeing that he's getting nowhere, we're told the tribune decided to take Paul into questioning in the barracks, but that the violence simply followed him. Luke says that the mob got so bad the soldiers had to literally pick Paul up and carry him. All the while, people are screaming, away with him, which is basically, let's kill him. I think it's ironic that Paul was arrested and charged in the temple while he was observing the very things these men claimed he was trying to turn people against. Luke wants us to understand that Paul is completely innocent in this matter. These Jews from Asia were the real troublemakers, and they ought to have been the ones who were put on trial for whipping the city into a frenzy and for slandering Paul with their anarchy. Now, this is nothing short of gross misjustice. Paul is suffering for doing right. He didn't come to Jerusalem to stir the pot. He came to be faithful. He came out of love, but he suffered for it. But this is what love does. As 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7 says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul knew he would suffer in Jerusalem, but he went anyway. The church was just too precious for him to stop short of it. The gospel was too great to Paul for him to be quiet. The name of Christ was too glorious for him to put his physical safety above the importance of his bride. Paul couldn't hold back. And now what God had revealed to Paul on the way is coming to bear. He is being bound and handed over to the Gentiles, but he's not afraid and he's not turning back. In fact, next week when we hear his address to the people, all we will see from him is love and affection for them. For now, what we see is Paul suffering for the truth, but having no regrets. We see him finishing his course with great courage. We see him showing love to his enemies, sharing the gospel with them, even as they hate him and despise him and try to kill him for it. Love endures all wrong, friends, because it entrusts itself to the Lord who delivers. Love loves no matter what, and God is glorified through that. Love is worth it because Christ is worth it. It's hard not to look at what Paul went through without thinking of the way that Jesus suffered for us. In him, we have seen the greatest display of love the world has ever known. We see Jesus on the cross enduring insults and injury, of being slandered and accused, of suffering mistrial and torture, and yet we are told he opened not his mouth. Rather, like his sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth to his accusers in his own defense, but he went to the cross he suffered the shame so that we could be rescued and restored to God. And for that humility, God has exalted him with a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. This is the gospel. It is the story of God's love. It is a costly love given to us without price. And it is a love that is meant to well up in us as we walk with Christ on this path of faith. 
Now, Jesus once told his disciples that a day would come where they would be put out of the synagogues and where people would kill them thinking they were offering service to God. He tells them that he, he did not want this to be a surprise to them because he did not want, and he did not want them to fall away. While it is good for us to be angry at injustice and to cry out against it, if you read through the Psalms, you will find the psalmist raising their voices to God about suffering injustice. It is right to be upset about these things. It is right to raise our voices to God, to cry out to him, How long, O Lord? But it is important for us to remember that as we do, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our fight is against spiritual forces that are at work in our world, and we engage them by being true to the gospel. We fight them not with the means of earthly warfare, but with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God and the love of Christ that has rescued us. This is the way of love. This is why love will endure injustice towards itself, because it looks to God to vindicate us, and it trusts in God to work our suffering for his good and for our good. The way of love is costly, but it is worth it. May God equip us to show that love just as Paul did. May he bind us to the truth. May he equip us to bear with one another. And may he give us hearts that love even our enemies so that, the lo- so that through love, the love of Christ would shine brightly from us into a dark world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have shown enduring love to us. We thank you, Father, for the way that you, you are slow to anger, for the way you are abounding in faithfulness and steadfast loving kindness towards us. And Lord, we see that most brilliantly in how you have rescued your people through Jesus. But Lord, the gospel is not merely something to be looked at. It's, it's meant to be lived out. And you tell us that if we are in Christ, then we are a new creation. You give us this heart to love We see Paul as he's loving his enemies, as he's loving the church, as as he's loving Christ above even his own life. And Lord, as we consider his example, we pray that you would give us hearts to follow, that we would imitate Christ as his disciples, that we would be faithful sons and daughters, faithful servants of you, and that we would be faithful in all the places that you call us to go for your kingdom. Father, you know the reality is that many of these these places and situations that we go into, even on a weekly basis, are just complicated. And so we, we pray for wisdom because we want to love the way Christ is loved, and yet we battle against the flesh that wants to say no. And we, we ask that you would give us wisdom and how to speak, when to speak, what to say, how to live so that love would be preeminent in our lives. Father, we pray for this wisdom, and we pray that you would continue to show your love towards us as we look forward to the day when Christ will return and make all things new. And I pray this all in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.